Church family scripture reading this evening is from John 20, verses 19 to 31. John 20, verses 19 to 31. This is the day of, beginning at the day of Jesus' resurrection. Let us now hear the infallible word of our God. On the evening of that day, that is the day of Jesus' resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. <clears throat> now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Lord God and Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your perfect, beautiful, infallible, life-giving words. We pray, Lord, open our hearts and our mouth and our minds to speak and receive these words of truth. Lord, be at work with your Holy Spirit in our midst. And we pray this the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The church family, I will believe it when I see it. I'm sure you're familiar with that expression. You've probably said it yourself sometime. And there are situations where that is quite understandable. If you have somebody promising you things of which you know that they're not going to be able to deliver, maybe a politician of some sort, what do you say? I'll believe it when I see it. However, if you were to say that to a close friend, children, if you have a friend and they, that, that friend would promise you something, maybe they're inviting you over to their house 
for a big party of something. And you're like, eh, I'll believe it when I see it. It'd be kind of rude, right? It's not very nice. But that was the very thing that Thomas said. When his friends, the disciples, came to tell him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. He's alive. What did Thomas say? I'll believe it when I see it. Thomas demanded visible, tangible, touchable evidence before he would truly believe his friends that the Lord had arisen, rose from the dead. And before we're quick to judge Thomas, let it be known to all of us that by nature, this is our response. When God comes with the good tidings of salvation, of reconciliation with Him through our Lord Jesus Christ, what do we say? I'll believe it when I see it. And even after having come to faith, by grace, through the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, how many times do we still say when we see the promises in God's Word about certain blessings or certain gifts, I'll believe it when I see it. So the question we need to ask ourselves this evening is this. Jesus, if Jesus is the one who blesses those who have not seen and yet believed, how can we see spiritual realities, the promises of God, and especially salvation in Jesus Christ? How can we believe these spiritual things when we don't see them in our real life around us? Our text for this evening is John 20, verse 24 to 29. <clears throat> and for now, I will just read verses 28 and 29. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. Our theme is Jesus restores Thomas with two simple points. An unbelieving Thomas and a believing Thomas. So our first point, an unbelieving Thomas. We know the story well, don't we? How Thomas responded to Jesus' crucifixion. When his friends gathered together, Thomas was not there. What could drive him to do so? Well, we need to take a short look at who this Thomas was. What does the Bible tell us about his character? It's not a whole lot. It tells us a lot more about, for example, Peter. But there are some clues in the Bible that tells us who, what kind of a man this Thomas was. And it, it appears that he was somebody who was maybe a little bit collie. Children, he just tended to be a little down, a little sad and pessimistic. We notice, for example, when Jesus and the disciples, they are in Galilee, and somebody comes to them and tells them that their friend Lazarus had died in Judea. So Jesus now announces to the disciples, we are going to Judea. Judea was a dangerous place. That's where most of the enemies of our Lord were. And what does Thomas say to his fellow disciples? 
Let us also go with him, that we may die with him. You can read it in John 11. You see, Thomas was the kind of man who would immediately think of the worst-case scenario and then say it out loud for everybody to hear. <clears throat> but Thomas also appears to have been a deep thinker, somebody who was not so easily convinced, somebody who liked to hear good arguments, somebody who would not be swept away with passions and feelings. And that's a commendable trait. When you read, for example, just before the day of Jesus' crucifixion, we're in the upper room, and Jesus is speaking comfortable words to the disciples, and he tells them that he must go away, but he also tells them that they know where he is going. And what does Thomas say in response? Lord, we don't know where you go, and how do we know the way? Thomas wanted to understand what he believed. And within the boundaries of Scripture, we ought to be like that. The problem with Thomas was that when he could not figure things out, that in combination with his character caused him to be deeply distressed when he saw his Lord and Master and Teacher crucified on the cross died like a criminal. Here was the master of his cause to whom he had given three years of his life following him wholeheartedly and now it appears that it had all ended and ended so miserably and he didn't have an answer for it. And because he couldn't explain it, he is deeply distressed and as a result, he makes a mistake In verse 19, we read that when the disciples were gathered on the day of Jesus' resurrection, of which they were unaware, Thomas was not with them. We don't know exactly what the reason was, but most likely he was simply too depressed and discouraged. And as a result, he misses out on the appearance of the Lord. Later on that week, however, there must have been an occasion at which point either the disciples looked up Thomas or he was looking for the company of the other disciples. Because there is a conversation taking place in verse 25. The other disciples, now talking to Thomas in person, said to him, We have seen the Lord. What's interesting here is that we see Thomas, when he saw his Lord and Savior die on the cross, did not immediately pack his bag, bags to go back to Galilee, leaving everything behind. He did stick around. And here we see that Thomas really was a true believer. <clears throat> and this was a mark of grace. As you can read in 1 John 3, verse 14, it says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Thomas still loved the brethren. 
He still loved his fellow disciples. He had to be among them. He couldn't just leave them behind. Without them, he feels alone and desolate. Nevertheless, he could not stand their enthusiasm because they had something that he had not. We see this in his incredulity, his unwillingness to believe. When they tell him that the Lord is raised from the dead and that they had seen him, he refuses to believe it. When it says here, unless I shall see in his hand of the nails, the unless here is emphatic. He's making it an absolute condition. I will most certainly not believe until I cannot just see those wounds. I want to touch him. I want to know that it's really there. That is not just a ghost. That was Thomas. That was the evidence that he demanded. Now, what is he? Would you think that if Thomas was 100% convinced that the Lord Jesus had died and that he, but there was no life after this anymore, Jesus was dead for good, you really think he would have stuck around in Jerusalem? There must have been a glimmer of hope and faith that what the disciples said was true about the Lord. But he is willfully and purposefully fighting that glimmer of hope and faith. Why would he do that? Because he was afraid of even greater disappointment. What if? Maybe it could be true. Could it really be that the Lord arose from the dead? And you can see that the hope and excitement starts to grow in his heart, only to figure out that it is not true after all. At which point he would be absolutely crushed. That's what he's afraid of. And that's what he's fighting. He wants evidence. He wants to be sure. Whatever it is that the friend saw, I don't know, maybe you saw a ghost. How do you know this is really real? What does it tell us? It tells us this. First of all, that the unbelief of a child of God is a negative manifestation of their love for Christ. What does that mean? If you're a true child of God and you are walking in temporary unbelief, it will make you absolutely miserable because you yearn for Christ, yet you feel that He is absent. And that's what's happening here in Thomas. Because he is walking in temporary unbelief, he's not experiencing the presence of his Lord. He thinks he's gone, and he is absolutely miserable. Is there any among you this evening, any of you who is afraid to believe something that the Lord is promising you in His Word? Are you afraid that you may be deceiving yourself? 
whatever it is. If that is the case, <coughs> I urge you to pay close attention to the mistake that Thomas is making here. In essence, what he is doing, first of all, on the first day of Jesus' resurrection, is he's neglecting the means of grace, in particular, the assembly of the saints. Now, I don't think the disciples on that first day were gathering together for a worship service. That would not have been the custom there. But they were gathering to strengthen and encourage one another. At least they wanted to be in one another's company. And it is right there and then when the Lord Jesus appears. And the fact that it points out that Thomas wasn't there implies that he might quite have well known that they were gathering together and he decided not to be there. And therefore, he misses out. Furthermore, Thomas also missed out on the promises. He was, he was neglecting, he was ignoring the promises that were given to him. Jesus himself, how many times over those last three years had Jesus said that he was going to die and be raised again from the dead on the third day? And indeed, Thomas, born and raised a Jew who had the Old Testament, had all the prophecies about the Messiah doing just that. But for some reason, it didn't cross his mind. And even if it did, he decided not to believe it. And as such, he's walking in darkness. Nevertheless, our compassionate Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would not leave Thomas in this estate. Indeed, he comes to appear to this unbelieving Thomas. What happens next? Our text says that it is now eight days later, and if you know the Jewish way of counting, they begin on the day off. So when it says eight days later, it just means the next Sunday, the first day of the week. The disciples are gathered again in this building, wherever they are, and Jesus comes into their midst. And he repeats the words that he had said the week before. Peace be to you. What's that peace all about? Well, especially on the week before when he had said this, the disciples were all gathered together. They were afraid. They were sorely afraid. And Jesus comes in and he says, peace to you. Do we realize what's behind those words? The Lord Jesus had just gone to the cross for them. And he comes in and he says, peace to you. Why? Well, we've got the Jews roaming the streets. They're after us to persecute us. They're going to crucify us next. Jesus says, it doesn't matter anymore. I died for your sin. You are reconciled with God. Nothing can hurt you anymore. You do not have to be afraid. Peace to you. He wants his disciples and he wants all of his children to have that peace that passes all understanding that it is well with your soul, that you are a child of God, that you've been redeemed by him when he died on the cross. And that peace he wants all of his children to have because now a week later he comes again and he says peace to you, to everyone in the room, including Thomas. He wants unbelieving, doubting Thomas to have that peace. How do we know that? Well, the next thing is he turns to him. 
and graciously begins to condescend to Thomas in a way that was completely undeserved. <coughs> How does he do it? Well, in verse 27, we read, Jesus turning to Thomas, Thomas, reach here your finger and look at my hands and take your hand and thrust it into my side and do not be faithless, but believing. Jesus offers Thomas to fulfill his request. Thomas, come here. Go ahead. Touch my wounds. Touch my side. And in offering to fulfill Thomas' request, you can see how gently Jesus is dealing with him. He lets Thomas draw his own conclusions in saying so. And Thomas immediately realizes the spiritual malady that he was in, that is unbelief. Jesus could have left Thomas to wallow in his unbelief until he would finally cave. Or he could have come barging into the room saying, Thomas, you, we need to talk. We've got a problem here. But no, instead he said, Thomas, come here. Go ahead, do what you said you would do. And Thomas could draw his own conclusions and realize the foolishness of his request. And only then comes the rebuke. In light of all this, Jesus says, be not faithless, be not unbelieving. And this is very strong language. He absolutely forbids Thomas to be unbelieving. <coughs> Why is that? Well, precisely because Thomas had been willfully fighting faith in a foolish attempt to self-preservation because he didn't want, because he feared greater disappointment. And in doing so, Thomas gave priority over the... He gave priority to the experience of the senses rather than giving priority the word of God. Thomas thought it was more important to be able to feel, or to see, to touch something, rather than to believe Scripture and the promises of Jesus. And because of that, he was not to be excused for his unbelief. Are we to be blamed for unbelief? Christ outside of the kingdom? Are you still demanding that God would give you evidence by which you may know that He is real and that He's really offering salvation to you? <clears throat> or maybe if you do know Jesus Christ, are you in a situation where you're struggling with something? Maybe the Lord is giving a particular burden to you or maybe he's calling you to do something in his kingdom, whatever it is. 
and you think in your heart maybe the situation isn't lending itself to it, the Lord isn't helping me, or whatever it is, and you say, I want, I want everything in my life to be just right before I'm going to believe again in God's promises. Or He needs to give me this or that, or answer this particular prayer before I'm going to believe His promises. Are you demanding evidence before faith? Because that would contradict Scripture. This well-known verse of 2 Corinthians 5 or 7 says, We walk by faith and not by sight. We must first believe, and then He will cause you to see spiritually. But if you are in that estate, if you are in a challenging situation, or you are considering a call, Are you excluding yourself from the means of grace there where He is revealing Himself, just like Thomas was? Because when Jesus walks into this room, He says, peace to you. He went there where the saints gathered, and particularly where they gathered for worship, and He comes in, and He is in their midst, and he says, peace to you. Do you want peace? Be in the company of the saints. And especially be present in the worship service. And then delve into scripture. Looking for his promises. And praying for the light of the Holy Spirit. Because when you, even if you're not feeling it. Even if you're there. Even if you just run out of energy and you're just like, I'm too tired for this stuff right now. If you renounce the means of grace, you are renouncing a blessing for which there is no compensation. You want to have faith? Go to the Word of God, go back to Christ. That brings us to a second point, a believing Thomas. Jesus had convicted Thomas of his unbelief. And it immediately comes out in Thomas. As it appears, nowhere do we read that Thomas actually took Jesus up on the offer and that he went over to Jesus to touch the wounds. It apparently was no longer necessary. Instead, out of his mouth comes an unprecedented confession of faith. In response to Jesus, Thomas says, My Lord and my God. Thus far, none of the believers and none of the disciples had given such a strong testimony of faith. We've heard a few. We heard Peter's confession, the confession of the Roman centurion, but none of them had thus far said, My Lord and my God. And in this, Thomas shows, in this very moment, how he had an intimate, all of a sudden, he had this intimate knowledge of who Jesus was. 
as Savior, as the Son of God, and who He was for Him personally. How do you think Thomas just all of a sudden got there? How, how, how did he go from unbelief to this, the, possibly the greatest confession that you read in the whole Bible? It was because Thomas was immediately confronted by Jesus' omniscience and omnipresence. Children, that's two difficult words. But omniscience means that Jesus knows all things. And omnipresence means that, you read there the word presence. Omnipresence means that Jesus is everywhere present. And Thomas just figured this out. How so? Because earlier that week, Thomas had told, boldly told the disciples, unless I can put my fingers in the wounds, I will not believe. When he did that, Jesus, in his human nature, in, in his humanity, was not there present, obviously. But now, a couple days later, Jesus comes into the room, and he is repeating Thomas' words after him, exactly. And right there in that moment, Thomas realized that when he had said those words earlier that week, even though Jesus had not been standing in front of him in his human nature, Jesus was nevertheless there. And he knew exactly what he had said. As a matter of fact, Jesus knew exactly what he was thinking, and he knew exactly what his motives were behind it. And here Jesus comes... And he bothers to deal with him in such a personal way. Restoring him from that unbelief. That the Son of God came into this world to die for his sins. And then right after that, Thomas is being so obstinate. And then Jesus comes to him specially. And he says, Thomas, I want you to have that peace that I died for your sins. Thomas realized that he was dealing with the Son of God, who nevertheless deeply cared for his soul, intimately cared for his love and for his zeal. And that's when he says, my Lord and my God. It wasn't that just that Jesus is Lord and he is God. No, Thomas owns him as Lord and God. My Lord and my God. But you see in this confession, Thomas is satisfied. He doesn't need any evidence anymore. He completely surrendered to Christ, consecrating his life to him. This is ultimate surrender and satisfaction. faith was awakened based upon this experience that Thomas here had Thomas made this great confession but it didn't come until he actually saw the Lord Jesus in his human nature Calvin comments on it he said Thomas needed to be violently drawn to faith 
by the experience of the senses, which is altogether at variance with the nature of faith. Calvin says this is not how faith is supposed to work. And therefore, it wasn't so much the experience itself, the visible evidence, that awakened him out of his sleep. But by being confronted by Jesus, Thomas realized what he already knew by faith and what he should have remembered. He realized that he was ignoring the very realities that he should have been contemplating about. Therefore, Kelvin again. Kelvin says, faith cannot flow from a merely experimental knowledge of events, but must draw its origin from the Word of God. Faith flows ultimately from the Word of God as the Holy Spirit applies it to your heart. But Thomas had said, no, I need evidence. I need an experience But if we root our faith in certain experiences, that faith will be very shaky. It can be all over the place. Calvin says you cannot have true faith unless it is rooted in the Word of God. And this is how Thomas regained faith when he realized that the living word standing right in front of him was real and it is true and he'd been so foolish to ignore that reality. When Thomas met Jesus, sensible experience was no longer required. Those wounds no longer had to be touched. And indeed, experiences, the Christian experience whatever it may be, a miraculous answer to prayer or God speaking to you through a particular text powerfully or whatever else it is. These are condescensions of God to us, weak believers, to encourage us, to help us along the way. They are beautiful, but they are never the basis of your faith. If you make those things your foundation of your faith, The Holy Spirit will not rest until you lose faith in those experiences and place it in the Word of God alone. Because this is what follows in Jesus' admonition to Thomas. You see how Jesus accepts Thomas' worship. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, that is worship. Now, if this had been an angel, he would have rebuked Thomas. But Jesus accepts Thomas' worship, and that shows, again, indeed, that he truly is the Son of God. But even though this might be the greatest testimony of faith in Scripture, Jesus does not commend Thomas for it, even though he had done so in the past for for others. Others had given testimonies of faith, and Jesus had commended them for it, but not this time. Why not? Well, precisely because it was uttered and brought about with this extraordinary condescension. 
Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. And then indeed, Jesus blesses those who have not seen and have nevertheless believed. Those who have not seen without, and those who nevertheless believe without visible, sensible, tangible evidence. Blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. Children, do you, do you sometimes wish you would live in the days of Jesus and you could talk to him, you could see him, you could see him do all these miracles and you could listen to his sermons and you could ask him questions? Do you maybe think these disciples were a little bit more blessed than we are because they got to be with Jesus? You know what Jesus says here? Blessed are they who have not seen, who have nevertheless believed. You and I are no less blessed than those disciples. We have the whole word of God. And through it, Jesus comes so close to us that he comes to live in our hearts. And Jesus says, that's enough. It's not that the disciples were less blessed than we are, but they were not more blessed than we are just because they got to be in the presence of the Lord in his human nature. <coughs> and therefore, what Jesus Christ here is commending is faith that is grounded in the testimony of his word without depending on human reason experiences, <clears throat> or any other carnal or physical evidence. He's not saying that reasoning and arguing and experiences or any other form of evidence is wrong. But he said, your faith ought not to depend on those things. Your faith ought to depend on the testimony of his word alone. Why is that? Listen carefully. True faith transcends any evidence that we can take in with the senses because it is rooted in realities that are in heaven above. Faith supersedes experience. I'm trying to explain that with an illustration. I was in high school. I once asked my science teacher to explain to me how a compass works. And he said, you know what, it's a little complicated. Let me help you out. And two weeks later, he comes to me with a stack of paper about half an inch thick. And it appeared to be a collection of academic journals about poles and magnetic fields and who knows what, way over my head. Needless to say, I still do not know how a compass works. But the question is, in order for me to use a compass, do I need to understand how the thing works? Do I need to know all the technicalities behind it? No. In order for me 
to make good use of a compass, I have to believe that the thing tells me the truth about where I'm headed. That's it. See, when it comes to heavenly realities, there are things in the Bible that we can simply not wrap our minds around. Things in the Bible, doctrines in the Bible, that we would not be able to dream up. And we only know them because God has showed it to us. And we can only know them for as far as the Bible explains it. Can you explain to me in detail how, how, how the Trinity works? Or how Jesus can have a divine nature and a human nature and yet be one in person? Some of the old church fathers have attempted to do so and invariably descended into heresy. And yet we know these things are true because the Bible tells it. How? To the fullest detail? We don't. We don't know. But we know that they are true. And so it is when the gospel call comes to us and he says there is full and complete forgiveness for a save for a sinner such as I am in the blood of the Son of God who died on the cross. <coughs> These things we cannot explain. We are called upon to believe them. And only when we believe them, we will see and understand more and more and more of it. But guess what? All of eternity, we will still stand in awe and we will still be learning about the grace and the beauty and the holiness and the perfections of God. Therefore, Jesus blesses you when you are willing to humble yourself and to put aside your intellectual abilities and to just believe what he says and take him at his word. That brings us to our final application. <clears throat> Foundation of your faith. What is it? <coughs> the foundation of faith is evidence of things that are not seen. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. As we just saw, the Bible presents us with doctrines that we could not even imagine in our wildest dreams. And the only reason we know that they are real is because God revealed it to us. The fact that you believe these things is evidence that they exist, that they are real. Because we couldn't, humanity could not dream them up. Therefore, faith is the substance of things hoped for. You might say, so I believe, but I'm still struggling. Help me, my unbelief. How can you strengthen that faith? How can you obtain that faith? And how can you grow it? 
Well, we cannot grow it in our own power. That we know. It is a gift of God. But listen to this. In verse 26, it says, And a week later, again, the disciples were within. And Thomas this time was with them. And then Jesus came again, the doors being shut. And he stood in their midst. Why does John bother to mention again that the doors were shut? The week before, it had been for fear of the Jews, but the disciples were no longer afraid. Christ had given them the peace, and they weren't scared anymore. But nevertheless, John says the doors were shut. Why were they shut? What he's pointing out is that Jesus, in his glorified body, could not be stopped by any obstacle. He could literally move through walls. It was a miraculous appearance, a supernatural appearance. But what's implied here and what this proves is that Jesus, throughout this whole week that now lays past, could have gone to Thomas at any moment in time to talk to him privately about his unbelief. Wasn't that what he had done to Peter on the first day of the week? But no, the doors were shut. Jesus comes in on the first day of the week, a week, <coughs> a week after the resurrection, because he decided to deal with Thomas the moment Thomas decided to gather with the saints on the Lord's day. And so he still works today. There are no obstacles for the Lord to come to you, to show himself to you, to speak to you in any way he pleases, to transform your heart, to do whatever it is that you want him to do. There's no obstacles for him whatsoever. However, in his wisdom, he has given us the means of grace. And he has appointed them to us. He says, use them. You want to grow your faith? You want to obtain faith? Go to the means of grace. Grace, Come faithful to the worship service and set time apart to meditate on His Word every day and to pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit that He would show you the truths of His Word, help you to believe them, grow you in grace, overcome sin and all of these realities. If you're still outside of Jesus Christ, Jesus knew every thought and every motive of Thomas when he was walking in darkness. And so he knows you. He knows your every thought. He knows your every motive. He knows your every desire. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, that reality ought to scare you because one day you will be held accountable for it. And that proves to you, just as much as it did to Thomas, that Jesus is indeed God. He's the Son of God. But at the same time, He is offering salvation. And you might say, I can't give myself faith. But He can. And He's telling you today, use the means of grace. Dive into that word of mine. 
Meditate on it. Pray. Come to church faithfully with a heart that is prepared to hear the truth. And He will give it to you. And He will give it to you increasingly more and more and more. If you're a true believer, you'll be ready to affirm that. Isn't it true? God grows your faith through the means of grace. Don't give the Lord rest until you too are able to say, my Lord and my God. And if you are a true believer, know that God will never condone your temporary unbelief, or backsliding, wandering. He will cure it. Because when we walk in unbelief, we are doubting His love, and as such we give a terrible witness to the world. He is jealous for your love, and He will make sure that you come back to Him with faith rooted in the Word. Don't let it come to that. Go back to the Word. If we go back to that question that we asked in the introduction, how can you see spiritual realities? How can you see Jesus with spiritual eyes when you don't see Him in front of you? It's only by faith. And therefore Christ is calling you just as much as He's calling Thomas. He's telling you and I, be not faithless, but believing. Don't say, I'll believe it when I see it. But believe it in order to see it. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, for the truths of the Bible, the truths of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, apply them into our hearts that we may have faith and that that faith may be strengthened. Will you be with us in Lord in this week? Will you keep us from sin? Take none of us away unprepared to meet you. But Lord, glorify your name in our lives. Take away all sin, even as of this evening, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.